You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, this is Glenn Lowry. I'm host of The Glenn Show at bloggingheads.tv and am grateful that you've tuned in. The episode that you are about to see is a wonderful conversation that John McWhorter, my frequent conversation partner here, and I conduct with Shelby Steele and Eli Steele, uh, the narrator and uh, director, respectively, of the new film, What Killed Michael Brown. Stay tuned. It's a very good conversation. But I'm here now to inform you that The Glenn Show is making a move. We have set up a Patreon account to solicit support from our listeners. That's patreon.com forward slash Glenn Show. Two ends, one word. Patreon.com forward slash Glenn Show. I hope that you will visit the Patreon page and that you will decide to support the show. What I want you to know is that on uh, November 23rd, that's two weeks from today, John McWhorter and I will launch this new version of The Glenn Show with a conversation in which we discuss the election results. Going forward from there, Glenn Show episodes will appear first at the Patreon site, and then only some days to a week later uh, be available at YouTube to the general public. The Patreon site will carry our podcast in both video and audio format. Subscribers at Patreon will have early access to The Glenn Show and will have access to the comment section at the Patreon site where John and I will look to see what people have to say about our offerings and uh, will uh, respond. We are also uh, going to be more regular in the episodes that we post. I will be posting new content on a weekly basis. And John and I will be conducting our conversations on a twice monthly basis. I will interview other guests on the off weeks. So with gratitude for your support through these years that we've been doing the show, I welcome you to Glenn Show 2.0, the new version, which I hope you will support at patreon.com forward slash Glenn Show. Thanks again. Uh, this is Glenn Lowry at the Glenn Show at bloggingheads.tv. Uh, it's my pleasure to welcome my conversation partner, John McWhorter of Columbia University. I teach at Brown University, and we are the black guys at bloggingheads.tv. And it's my further pleasure to welcome two more black guys. Uh, this is Shelby Steele <laughs> and Eli Steele, who are respectively the uh, narrator and writer and the director for the new film, What Killed Michael Brown, which is getting a lot of attention. Uh, Shelby is a fellow, senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and a prolific writer um, who's uh, uh, won awards and uh, a great acclaim for his critical engagement questions of race in American politics and culture. Uh, Eli is a, a seasoned uh, filmmaker and uh, father and son, Shelby and Eli have collaborated on this film. Uh, here we are uh, to talk about it. So welcome Shelby, welcome Eli. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Okay, What Killed Michael Brown is the film. Uh, there is a lot of controversy already. I hear that Amazon was a little bit reluctant to let you guys uh, uh, put your film up at their streaming service. I don't know what that's about, 
but the reviews that I have read are, are, are very positive, including the review that I offered here uh, with John in our last conversation. Uh, so we're really excited to be able to talk to you about the genesis of the film, the making of it, uh, the argument that the film conveys, the experience of actually being on the ground in Ferguson, Missouri, where a lot of the film was shot, uh, and so on. So uh, who wants to get started on the question of what's the, where did the idea for making this film, what killed Michael Brown, to taking up this question, going back to 2014, Michael Brown, uh, Darren Wilson, Ferguson, Missouri, and uh, using that as a platform for a much more ambitious, I think, and penetrating reflection on the race conversation in America today. Where'd that idea come from? Well, let me, you want me to take a stab at it? I'm, yeah, sure. That. It came with the realization, we're, we're, I'm always thinking about race so forth and politics and this, that, and the other. This film came from the realization that we had a body dead in the street. And from there uh, came, this, came the film. Uh, this this uh, was, was everything. It was a focus. It was a, a grounded uh, a grounds for all kinds of speculation and thinking. And we felt the whole American racial situation was somehow uh, concretized, uh, brought to life by this, the presence of this, uh, this body in the street. Been four and a half hours, hot sun, 100 degrees, 300-pound uh, teenager. Uh, and so that's, what's, that's what got us to uh, got us going. Um, then, you know, what was the reaction to the reaction was, was hysterical, was, was the riots, and they burned down this little Nowhereville sort of suburb of St. Louis, um, and people from all over the, uh, the world, really, descended on Ferguson, Missouri. And uh, so it was a very rich, uh, uh, what would you call it? A platform to work from. The optics. Yeah. The optics were terrible. Yes, I think those are the first words of the film. <laughs> I like that. That first line was great. Yeah, right. <laughs> one thing, one thing there's, um, one thing there's interesting about the whole thing, though, was maybe late 2015, we started talking about an idea for the film, and we kept returning to Ferguson, and the reason why we thought about Michael Brown and Ferguson was people were calling it the new Thelma. They were saying that this was a landmark uh, in American history. But the difference between Ferguson and Thelma could not be bigger. I mean, Thelma was very real. I mean, the oppression was very real. Ferguson had two narratives that came out of there. And, you know, one narrative wanted to tie itself to Thelma. And so we felt that um, we could do a deeper dive that Air Holder had done, that we should go beyond what he had done to try to get some more of the root of the problem. And that's what attracted us to this film, is that we thought that there was more to this story, that the superficial, you know, like um, civil life, I, I mean, that all the superficial stuff that they put on Ferguson, they say, this is where you believe it. 
we thought that there was much more behind the cloning. Well, it started a movement, didn't it? The events that happened in uh, uh, Ferguson, Missouri had deep political resonance for the, for the country as a whole. Um, you know, it, it, if it wasn't Selma, what was it then? What, what exactly is the difference in your minds between the classic, the iconic uh, narrative of African-American uh, struggle uh, against oppression on the one hand and uh, what in, unfolded in the wake of uh, Ferguson on the other? Well, on, on one level, I think one of the things that fat, that's the, that was one of my first questions about it is that um, it's not like Selma. You know, you and I grew up in segregation. I remember, I know about segregation. I, I lived the civil rights movement, saw these noble fights against this, against an enemy that was everywhere in the world I grew up in. So I didn't have any, no one had any doubt about the, the sort of integrity of Selma, the moral integrity. But in Ferguson, Missouri, what was it you were you were arguing that because one cop killed a black that somehow racism is systemic and and, and so forth and so on? Um, it seems to me that the elephant in the room is that racism was is so minimal now as as that it, it couldn't really in and of itself get any movement off the ground. There's not enough of it to go around. There's not enough injustice. Uh, and what we had instead was a generation looking for me, looking for power, looking to see how guilty white America would respond. And, and uh, then in that sense, the movement was cynical. It mimicked the real, the real movement, Selma, and the civil rights movement in the 50s and the 60s and so forth. It was mimicry. It was theater. It wasn't real. And yet there lay Michael Brown for four and a half hours on the street. That's right. Uh, and so and in, yet, in the name of an illusion, it was, it was a, a real death. I think, the, um, go ahead, John, please. I was just going to say that I've always been struck with Ferguson by the hardcore resistance to acknowledging the truth. So there's the original, you know, hands up, don't shoot story. And that was taken as having a certain meaning. And then it became clear, you know, just basically unassailably clear that Michael Brown's friend lied. I had never seen the actual video of him doing it, but he, he lied. And what actually happened is that Michael Brown attacked Darren Wilson several times to the point that Wilson felt that he had no choice but to shoot him. That's simply the truth. And yet, there's almost a religious approach to the whole thing today, and not only among a few hardcore black protesters in Ferguson, but in general, the thinking person is not supposed to say outright that we were hoodwinked about that story and that Michael Brown's death was a very sad thing, but it's not this story of Darren Wilson as this person driven by underlying racism to shoot a guy who's standing there with his hands up. That simply didn't happen. And yet there's a tacit sense, I think, among the American intelligentsia and now the American woke and today's 
wokeness was partly driven by Ferguson and Martin. That's when things took a new turn. There's this idea that on some level, you're supposed to believe that Michael Brown died that way. As I've said to Glenn a couple of times on this show, you can be sure there'll be a movie. There'll be a movie where they get some large young black man to play Michael Brown. And when they get to that scene, they're not going to shoot it straight. They're not going to show what happens. Suddenly, they're going to start with strobe lighting and multiple perspectives, or they're going to do a Rashomon thing, where the idea is that nobody quite knows what happened. But we do. And that's the big difference. And there are no lies involved in Selma. Everybody knows exactly what happened. Whereas with this, it's this, it's this Icelandic saga. That's the relationship to truth that the way we're told about it seems to have. And that's the way it's going to continue to be, I suspect, despite that this documentary lays out so clearly what the truth is, and not just in prose, which doesn't reach all people, but in pictures. But still, the idea is going to persist that on some level, Michael Brown was senselessly murdered by a bigot. It's frustrating. Why is it so hard to see the truth here? That's another great line. You know, how you can say so much with so few words. Why is it so hard to see the truth here? And I just uh, put that question uh, to you in light of what John just said. Why was it so hard for America to see the truth, even to this day, for a great many people to see the truth there? Shelby? Yeah, yeah I think, I think uh, even to this day, it's, it's, uh, it's difficult. Um, but I think the, the dynamic of the whole of the situation uh, is that Michael Brown was, was in, in what I call the poetic truth, the, the truth that serves your, your politics or your ideology or your power interests. Um, Michael Brown was a sort of means to power for, for many people. And the event itself, the murder or the shooting, excuse me, of a, of a black teenager and so forth, that um, that in itself was a so a potential source of, of real real power and muscle in American life, and it, and for particularly for blacks. And right away you saw Black Lives Matter uh, um, blossom, and other other groups like it. Um, it gave credit to the uh, uh, to the American left uh, in across all of American institutions, uh, the educational system, the universities, uh, all of them, you know, were, were uh, transformed, were changed, modified by the power inherent in that dead body. In, and even though, and so, yes, it was a lie. Michael Brown was not killed uh, by racism. Uh, it, was, it was just a tragedy, a terrible tragedy. Uh, but because it looked like it had the look of, of um, the ugly American past, racism, there was real power there. The power to really, truly, I mean, it may elect the president in a few days. It, it is a, it, it's, not a, it's not a small thing. Uh, and so yeah. in, in, in that sense, when you, have, when you have that much power, in play, then everybody's going to tell whatever story it takes to do to get that get some of that power. So the truth was very hard to to, to see. The truth was impossible. Uh, if you tell the truth, Michael Brown attacked the policeman. 
Uh, he was he was already here. His body was riddled with drugs, uh, on and on. Uh, the truth, no one wants. No one uh, has any use for. There's no power in it. The power was in the lie. And so the lie went on and on. This is, again, very different than Selma, where everything was on the up and up. Everything was straight. Everything was sincere. Uh, but here, when you, you put that much power uh, out there, particularly people who have none then, uh, or have very little, then the, the truth is the enemy. They, they, they're going to kill off the truth. They're going to hate the truth. Uh, the lie is what, is what, that's what Eric Holder, that's about President Obama. They all wanted some of that power. And they invested in the lie that he was a victim of racism. Uh, and they went, down, they went to Ferguson with the power of the United States government behind them to prove that. Well, so they, help me to understand something, because if you can see it and if I can see it, everybody can see it. I mean, everybody observing these events can, has basically got the same information. Now, I can understand why uh, uh, black activists and Black Lives Matter might cling to a certain narrative because it fits with their ideology. But what about the other 300 million Americans? Uh, what keeps somebody from coming out and just saying, this is a fraud, I'm not gonna be railroaded by you people, Racism, 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 obviously the man was a thug. No, I'm not gonna apologize for using that word because that's what he was. You attack an armed police officer? Who are you but a dangerous criminal? I can imagine what else you're doing when you're not attacking police officers. I'm not gonna lie down prostrate to you people and let you bludgeon me with some guilt trip because I can see the reality. The reality is there's way too much black crime. If black people and the police weren't coming into encounters with each other so frequently, we wouldn't have many of these incidents. Almost all of them are the guys attacking the cop so that's a minstrel show that you're trying to run on me, and I'm not going to play that game. Why don't they say that? And what would happen to you when, when you, if you said that, and not hypothetically, but you just said that, what would happen to you? I, I want to underscore that I was doing a hypothetical. Yeah, I'm saying. <laughs> well, okay, I'd probably you did, have you some intervention. Well. You, you, you did it too well, see? You, you didn't convince me. <laughs> Isn't it sad that there's so many people who on a certain level want Michael Brown to have been killed that way. It's like they like that story. It so it's like they're not even thinking about the person. That's right. That's right. He's, he's a vehicle, to, uh, a means to power. Uh, and you needed him to be a victim, um, a hapless, innocent victim of, of virulent, uh, unrelenting racism. Ooh, look at the power. So Shelby, what killed Michael Brown? Um, what killed Michael Brown, we argue, uh, is this, the, this liberalism that came out of the 1960s that was much more concerned because it was also a, a confession on the part of white America to centuries of, of collusion with evil. When you when you when you confess to something like that, you give people a cudgel to to hit you with for forevermore. And whites have suffered, it seems to me, since the '60s, with this deficit of moral authority that comes from having confessed 
to evil. We, we know you did it. It's, it's, it's obvious. And so they are put in, this is what I call white guilt, is this, the, the, the defensiveness uh, that developed, has developed in white America. And whites now are, are, have became much, much more interested in relieving that, that tension, that guilt, uh, than in seeing to the development of black Americans. Uh, and, and so the, 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 um, in that sense, white guilt is this, this makes room for, uh, all sorts of machinations and, and what right away President Johnson tells us great society, war on poverty, school busing, affirmative action, expanded welfare payments, on and on and on, um, with, with, programs and policies that were designed to relieve guilt in white America, bring back innocence and, and bring back the moral legitimacy of, of American government. And in many ways, it was successful in achieving that, but it didn't do anything for the development of blacks. We're farther behind today than we were back in the 50s, uh, whites. Uh, and so that's, that's you know, I think that the, the the circumstance that we that we we, we end up with. Why? Okay. Go ahead, no. John. Again, go ahead, Shelby. I've wanted to ask you this for basically thirty years, and everybody should know that the reason that this linguistics professor is sitting here talking to Shelby Steele and Glenn Lowry is Shelby's work. Shelby, I've read every word you have ever written on race. Every word oh you inspired <laughs> me. But something I have always you inspired me. <laughs> I, I doubt it. I have always wanted to know. You were participating in the Great Society programs, and you always say, "Well, they didn't work." And I know you know why they didn't work because you were there, but I wasn't. And I have always wanted to know. Like, for example, you give the example in the documentary that you had this program that was set up, and no, none of the guys came. They didn't show up. But that's just one thing. You would think, you know, looking at all of that alphabet soup, all of that New Deal sounding stuff that the Great Society programs would have turned black communities upside down, and they just didn't. This is a genuine question. What was wrong with the programs or why didn't they work? What, what happened in the communities that you saw? What was wrong was I think one single thing. All those programs that you just mentioned, that I just mentioned, stole away from black people agency over their own fate. Mm -hmm. When you, pro and, and, and you can see it in our, our, our love for protest. Protest is always a way, you, again, you're basically putting your fate in the hands of the people that you're, you're uh, protesting. You put, we put our fate in the hands of white people who we said that just had oppressed us. We now gonna protest, give us, give us freedom. So, so, responsibility for our fate, for our life, went into the hands of, of whites, not us. Uh, one of the points we try to make is that blacks were doing much better in the 40s and 50s, moving slowly, coming in the post-war world, moving into the, more and more into the middle class and so forth, that immediately, at the, virtually the historical moment, when the Civil Rights Bill is passed, finally validating our freedom, we begin to decline. We decline because we put our fate in their hands 
uh, and they anguish and they fight and argue over is affirmative action good or bad? Is this is now it's policing? Do we have we will all these false phony issues because we refuse to look at this the this, this simple blatantly obvious uh, issue, which is that we as Black Americans have not taken enough responsibility for our own advancement. We keep being getting lost in the notion of justice and injustice. And we want justice and we want to get away from it. The hell with justice. Why not just get ahead? Why not become competitive with everyone else in American life? That's until we do that, it won't happen. But, well, but it, it, hold on, hold on. I'm sorry to interrupt, man. But I, I, I got to push back. I got to ask you some questions. <laughs> the hell with justice? The hell with justice? Hell you with don't it. like busing? busing? <laughs> you don't like, I mean, we're talking about gut basic civil rights here. So there's one argument, which is whatever the socio, uh, you know, economic, uh, family structure, neighborhood integrity consequences of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 or the Voting Rights Act of 1965 or the Brown decision of 54 and efforts to implement it by desegregating schools, whatever the knock-on consequences that you might speculate would have flowed from that, the Constitution required and the basic premises of equal citizenship required strenuous intervention in these years from 1945 to 1970 to transform the legal regime so that equal citizenship was a reality for blacks. That's what Selma was about. That's absolutely right. That's great stuff. Okay, now, and so, okay, okay, then I want you to expand on that, but I, let me just put a but, little, but let me put a codicil on it, but, which is blacks are not the only people at the butt end of the welfare state. Blacks have never been a majority of the people who were poor in the country. Uh, Medicaid is not about black people. AFDC is not about black people. It's about Americans of whom some are black people. But to read social policy in the 1960s through the lens of race uh, is perhaps a mistake since uh, the war on poverty was not just a war on behalf of the black poor. Okay, so you have those two points. Civil rights are an imperative regardless of their consequences. And the welfare state in America is not mainly a response to the racial exigency. It's, it's a response to socioeconomic inequality more broadly. And yet we have not taken enough responsibility for ourselves to achieve, to have achieved parity with whites. We didn't do it. I agree and, with that. That's the big unsayable thing. I, I say it because I'm just tired of dancing around it. We didn't do it. Yes, we had all that, just as you, you identified there, we had all this wonderful legislation passed, just confirming our, our right to exist as human beings and thus and so forth. We didn't do it. We didn't go, we didn't say the number one goal of black America, make sure your fourth grader can read at grade level. If he can't, he's gonna have a tough life. If he can, he'll do pretty well, no matter whether there's racism or not. You and I did pretty well. We lived, we grew up in segregation. Uh, somebody somewhere asked something of us. Uh, demand my father. If I told him I'm black and therefore I have, I, I can't be do well in school. <laughs> I don't even need to go there. <laughs> I don't even need need to go because everybody knows. In everybody in my neighborhood, 
two houses down, Melvin Van Peebles grew up, who invented independent film in America. Four. Uh, uh, down uh, two blocks away, Linda Hawkins went to be a PhD biologist, University of Michigan. Uh, head of the FBI in Western America. Uh, poor, poor black uh, neighborhood. The richest man in the neighborhood was a, a Pullman car porter. Hmm. They were black aristocracy, along with postal workers. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, well, as soon as we get into, into the 60s and 70s and so forth and beyond, um, all that's gone. The government now is going to give us all of these programs and okay, all these fascinating concepts of, of you know, convoluted notions of equality and, and so forth. And we didn't do it. And it was still today, we can still wring our hands. And unless we do it, it won't get done. The obvious question here is, well, doesn't that leave white people off the hook? My feeling is the greatest mistake black America has ever made is to try to keep white people on the hook. What would you well, say to Wendy just told me about um Bapud Igo, uh, the housing project in Ding Luit. Um the north side of the city is black, the south side Ding Luit is uh, white. But in the housing project they took the um the north half and that was be for the white people. And the south half uh I go with the people, the black people. When they got there, um, a lot of, most of the whites, I think almost all the whites, and uh, a lot of the blacks realized that this was a trap. So that's one thing they sort of left out is there a lot of um, black people with their own aspiration, the more, the more aspirational left. So you had the, the, the one that formed the underclass stayed in there. And part of what's interesting to read is like the, um, um, the oral testimonies of these people, it, they, they kind of looked at the housing project as sort of a reparation. They thought that they were owned. And why would you not think that you're owned? I mean, you just came up in Mississippi, you came up in the South. And here, they give you this gleamy tower, you have a view of the um, thing that was arch, which, by the way, sits on land that was um, primarily um, industrial, and a major employer for African-American uh, in people that uh, people um, it, it was torn down. So I'm just saying, when you think about that, all of, all of that history, you're, you're left with an underclass that did not have the understanding or the ability to move on. And so that underclass is still there. This is generation, generations later. So a lot of black people, to the credit, that's one that they always have to be kind of putting your brain, if there a lot of black people got out they moved out, and that's why we have, um, I mean, four centuries of oppression. I don't think any group has made the most progress in the history of mankind in blacks in America. We still have that population, though, that's left behind, and the very dangerous um, circumstances. It's, it's very powerful. Again. There's a difference, though, between poor 1950 and poor 1980. You know, I always, I've never fully understood the argument, and Eli, pardon me if I'm misconstruing, fully understood the argument that when poor people all live together and the, the doctors move away, that there's necessarily going to be a disaster. And, and this is going to seem almost 
too tidy to be true, but it happens to be true. I knew somebody who um, died at almost 100 who had, you know, been part of that Pruitt-Igo story. And um, I didn't know her well, but I knew her. And I knew her daughter, who is now septuagenarian. And then there's the generations below. And you see a sea change. Like the, the, the older woman worked cleaning houses until she couldn't, way past 90. Wouldn't have thought otherwise. And her daughter is the same way. Then different things happen as you go down the generations. There's a whole different way of approaching things. And I can't help thinking that that has something to do with the new cultural shift that there was in these housing projects. There's the idea that the projects were built you know, too far from the street and the architecture made it so that there was less of a sense of community, but I've never been sure that those things would have been so decisive if it weren't also for that new mood in the air at that there, time. And so, a, yeah, just musing about things. Excuse me, John. I was just going to comment. There's a book. I wonder if uh, if you guys know it. It's called The World of Patience Groans uh, by a guy named Scott Davis. It's published probably about 30 years ago. It tells the story of a princess. Her name is Patience Groan. She's a black woman. She's born to um, African-Americans in the hill country of Virginia who own their own land and are yeoman farmers. She's a princess because she's raised in a very privileged environment, relatively speaking, in terms of material, material circumstances. And she is uh, held in the highest regard by her parents. And she's got the education. She's playing the piano. And they want to marry her off to a good guy. And they marry her off to a good guy who gets a job at the railroad, makes a decent salary. And they move uh, to Richmond, Virginia. And they buy a little house in a neighborhood that ends up being model city into some kind of big housing development thing. But in the decades that she's there from like 1920 to 1950 and raising her family, the community is solid. It's not rich, but it's not poor. It's got a lot of integrity and strength. But she presides, I should say, watches toward the end of her life, the descent of this community into a ghetto. Um, and it, it happens by degrees. And it's a slow motion explosion of the Pruitt-Igo housing complex. It unfolds in slow motion, the integrity, the moral fiber, the Christian piety, the uh, Victorian work ethic, the, the uh, sense of uh, morality, the intact families, the work ethic. Uh, it was all there uh, in 1930, and it was all gone by 1960. Uh, yeah. And it's just, it's a extremely told through the life What's of this. What's the name of that book? The World of Patience Groans. The only thing that confuses um, me is um, uh, a book called um, Behind the Ghetto Wall uh, by Lee Rainwater. Rainwater, I know that one, yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. and he has a really good story at the beginning about um, Thomas Coolidge, who is a black guy, young black guy, like 21 years old. He got a baby, he got a wife. So if you read it, it is fascinating because it's in his own words. It's the, Washington University student just basically put a microphone in his face and he talked and uh, it's fascinating because in the opening he is trying to have a job. He's trying to do everything that he can do. But you have to remember they tore down all the factories. They tore down all the jobs around him. They built these housing projects. They built the arts. So they took away a lot of resources for these people. And so here he is in Poon, I go. And you're with the poor people, like Mr. Um, talking about, you're, you're talking about poor people, you're not with people of your own choosing. 
that's, we move to be around people that we want to be. And these people don't have that choice. So you stuck into the low common denominator dominate. And so that's the person who rules the housing project, whether that be the, uh, the drug dealer, the gangster, the pimp, or somebody, I'm not exaggerating, it's that bad. And what he states, um, Tommy Cooler stage is they want you to submit. They want you to give up your faith that you should be in a, in a productive American citizen. They want you to give up all of that. So by the end of it's only like 30, the book is about 5 million pages, but this section is only about 30 pages. By the time you get to the end of the 30 pages, he's a black nationalist. He wants to go kill white people. He wants to do all of these things. So how do you, how you devolve like that? Well, that was the, that was the energy that was in these healthy projects. There was not the, uh, I mean, it was, it was detrimental. And I, my dad was talking about it and I thought he was exaggerating. And no, I mean, if you get further into the book, this teaching cares about steps. This teaching cares about all these values. It's a five-year-old, it's a six-year-old. So it's the whole um, culture that, um, it ain't not only black. If you go into other, other cultures, like if you go into Native American, Native American, the blacks have been targeted by the government in the same way. And with the two voice-off groups, you know, something I've never completely understood is um, when you read about Pruitt Igo and places like that, everything starts to fall apart always about five years earlier than I would have expected. And I'm probably <laughs> just being too picky. But you start seeing this change in, say, 61, 62. And I always found myself thinking, shouldn't that really have started in, say, 67, 68, after the Great Society legislation kicks in? And I don't know the answer to that question. And there's also just this phase shift difference between Prudago, 1961-62, where having a child outside of wedlock is no longer that big a deal, but it's still considered unusual. It's still a topic of conversation. It's not the default choice, where there are knives, but no guns, you know, murder is not default yet, and 1975, something clearly, you know, as people in those places often said, something went crazy in the early 70s. But I do sometimes wonder, what was going on in 1961? You know, what had happened after the 50s? And I would have to study more to understand. Well, understand. remember that Moynihan's uh, report is 1965, but it's looking backwards. Right. I mean, he's, he's basically talking about what happened after the Second World War to uh you know the war on poverty in that interval and he's uh in effect forecasting the uh the debacle that was uh to lie ahead mm -hmm. yes he was yeah. uh, okay yeah. Shelby, something i gotta ask you man um you say uh placating or assuaging white guilt <clears throat> took priority over promoting black development mm -hmm. That sounds pretty outrageous. I mean, we're gonna talk about justice. If the issue is racial justice, what's more important, developing black people or making white people feel comfortable and not feel guilty? Well, obviously developing black people is more important and yet it came in second place. Came in a far distant <laughs> second place. I think, you know, again, the biggest mistake we made is, is to buy into the idea that our victimization by racism was our source of power rather than ourself, our skills, our talents, our development. Uh, we, here we had just won a great, as victims, we had won a great civil rights movement. 
The downside is, again, it, it seduces us. That, that victory is very seductive. It actually, it was racial justice and much needed, but it seduced us into, into adopting the framework of, of justice as our way ahead, our way out. And so we, we missed the fact that the real way out is development. This is the difference between blacks and Jews. Jews obviously have, been, have endured all manner of abuse, uh, Holocaust included, but they never gave up responsibility for their own fate. They went to the Middle East. They created one of the great nations of, of the uh, last century. Uh, they, if they landed in America from, uh, from Europe, then uh, and the schools weren't any good, they opened up yeshivas in somebody's basement. And they taught their kids, and their kids were the best educated kids in America. And they, they kept responsibility for their fate. The tragedy of black America is we gave up responsibility for our fate in the name of justice. I hate the word justice. It's it is the it's the it's the, because on the one it's, it's like it's a drug. It makes you feel that there's such a thing as justice. But if you really look at the human condition, <laughs> this is uh, you know this is a very rare phenomenon. You can't count on it. Maybe it's going to be there. Maybe it's not. But you better not count on it. You better focus on what's in front of you. And, and uh, uh, what what you need to get ahead, what you need to get your your family ahead, and, and so forth. People who do that thrive. If racism is systemic or not, doesn't mean you thrive if you if you keep responsibility for your own fate. So we you have um, in, in LA, in, in I live in LA, in Los Angeles, and uh, we have this technology school district, uh, LA Unified. We have about 200,000 students in the high school, uh, in the high school part. We allow these students to graduate with a 1.0 GPA, which you know is, I mean, we're practically grading on code these days anyway, so 1.0 is basically a zero these days. Well, why are we doing that? And, and you know, most of the students, they are going to have the 1.0 graduate, are going to be what we call the, um, the brown black belt, you know, mostly Hispanic black students. And that affects about 20 to 25,000 students per year, which is dumping the kids into society with no skill, with nothing. And, and so we're not developing the people, but yet the school board would send out a letter every May bragging about the graduation rate. So the school board looks good. They look, they look prestigious. They look like they are doing a great job. But you peel back the layers, okay, that's 20 to 25,000 students. How do you get the kid back up? Mm -hmm. So even to this day, we're being on the, and not one person that talks to you, I cannot publish an op-ed on this in the LA Times. Nobody cares. They don't care. They march for some guy that was you know, brutally uh, murdered in Minnesota. But they don't care about the 20 to 25,000 students. Well, that's partly because there's this tacit sense that um, 
to embrace school to that extent is somehow inauthentic to the race. And if you say that, then you're told that the studies don't support it. And the funniest thing is that the studies that supposedly show that there isn't that disconnect in parts of the black community between school and themselves, all of those studies actually show it. They demonstrate it very clearly, but the academics insist on interpreting them in what I think of as rather magic ways. But yeah, that means that George Floyd, you know, as tragic as that was, George Floyd and Michael Brown are more important than thousands of kids getting a good education. Yeah, that's, um, that is a priority that would look weird if we rolled the tape back and played it again and had a lot of people look. Yeah, it's not, it's not the way it's supposed to be. It's not the way it would have been. If black people had their own yeshivas, so to speak, 100 years ago and even 75 years ago, then something happens after about 1960, and here we are today. I want to say something. The slaves who were emancipated in 1863 were largely illiterate. They owned almost no land. Uh, they had virtually nothing. Uh, by the time you get to 1910, uh, the literacy rate, I can't name the number, but it is uh, one of the historically most impressive transformation of literacy in a population that have been observed in the modern world. You can't find the you're in go to southeastern Europe, you know, and find some population of poor white people, and you know you can't find anything comparable to that. Um, we actually made ourselves fit. This is Booker T. Washington's language, but it's actually accurate. Fit for citizenship. The newly emancipated slaves were a, a very disadvantaged, not only disadvantaged but underdeveloped population. By the time you get to 1910, you got a wholly different profile of African-American population, although there's still a long way to go. Um, we faced up to the challenge of emancipation because we actually had something to prove. There were a lot of doubters who said black folks are not going to make it in the modern world. The European immigrants are going to outcompete them and marginalize them. They're going to die off uh, and, and, and whatnot from disease because of, you know, et cetera. And that was all proved to be wrong. And in fact, that population gave rise to a sufficiently robust intellectual and uh, artisan and uh, small business class that we could mount a civil rights movement in the South of the United States and we could change the politics of the country. It seems to me that the, the present day uh, situation has some similarities. I'm, I don't want to quote too many books, but I'm very impressed by Herbert Storing's 1963 essay, The School of Slavery, where he extols the Booker T. Washington program in distinction to the uh, W.E.B. Du Bois program as a development program that seizes the, the, the nettle, it grasps the nettle. We have to develop ourselves. We have something to prove. They're sitting there like this, wondering what the Negro is gonna do, and we're gonna show them that we're a fit for citizenship. The attitude today is, you owe me. The citizenship, if you have any doubts, say my crime rate is high, say my school failure rate is high, say my out of wedlock like birth rate is high, say my incarceration rate is high. If you have any doubts about my fitness, you're a racist. Uh, and, and there's, it strikes me as that there's deep irony uh, in that it leaves us in this position of being um, appealing to the moral sensibility of a structure of power that our very argument denounces as uh, immoral and incapable of recognizing our humanity. I mean, we, nobody we is coming to save us. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, nobody is. Uh, we, we keep trying, we keep appealing to white guilt rather than, uh, and whites 
one of the one of the things that that is is so insidious in all this, because they are trying to get out from under this 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 accusation of evil of racism. They have learned that the way out is to show deference to blacks, to defer to blacks, to when blacks say, what blacks say, whatever they say is, is meaningful, is, is the truth. And so you, deference becomes a high, has become a high value in American life. This is, you see the mayor of Minneapolis give his fire station over to the rioters in uh, what? Police station. Yeah, oh, police station. station. What, what? The, to give it up. Give it up. They give up the center of Seattle. They tolerate riots all over the country uh, to show deference, to show that they are innocent of these. They have no. They have that they are it, the, the, to dissociate themselves from America's ugly racist past. We take it that we we live off of the white of, of white deference. That's what we keep appealing to. So what the University of California cancels the SAT exam, the ACT exam, because of inequality and so forth, uh, and in other words, lowers the standards, wipes out the standards when we need the standards raised. If anything, you ought, to, you ought to make blacks meet a higher standard than others. Make us meet, make us better. Help us, help us develop. Help us achieve more. Ask more of us. We have farther to go, farther to come. But we, everything, is, everything is orchestrated to lower standards for us. To, to, well, we demand deference now as justice. We define justice as deference, uh, and it, it's a symbiotic. They they bring out the worst in us, and we bring out the worst in them, and that's where America is today. But it's corrupt, man, as you have said. It's totally corrupt. It's corrupt at its core. Everybody's lying to everybody. You think they don't know mediocrity when they see it? I'm talking about white yeah. people. You, you think yeah. they don't know undeveloped people to, to whom they're deferring out of some kind of, you know, etiquette? or some sense of seeking uh, absolution, but what do you think they really think? You think they don't know thuggery when they see it? You think yeah, they, no, what's going no, on in Philadelphia yeah. right now? That, they, right. that people are not sitting there saying this is barbarity? You think they don't know barbarity when they see it? Keep it up, I said black, keep it up, just keep it up. Because white people are going to, at some point, regain their moral confidence, and they will have had it with you. There's going to be a backlash. Everything that goes one way comes back another way. There's, you know, that's just the that's just the way of nature. Whites have been have been have been shrunken. Their moral authority has been undermined, and they're going to get tired of that. And they're going to say, "Hey, we've given you everything under the sun. We've done. We you haven't done anything yourself." You don't ask anything of your own people. You don't. You don't judge people. How do you? You know what? What about eighty percent illegitimacy rate? And you want to blame us? With an illegitimacy rate like that, you're destined to to forevermore be at the very bottom. Um, I don't know. But again, it's that that symbiotic 
that symbiotic sort of thing. And, and John wants to dissent. I think just 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 very gently. I don't see that. <laughs> that backlash isn't coming anytime soon. And I just think to myself, you know, Ibram oh, Kendi. You know, Ibram Kendi. Do you know he gets twenty thousand dollars a pop? Twenty thousand dollars to quote unquote go somewhere. Nowadays, just on Zoom, he's just sitting in his house. He gets twenty thousand dollars for forty-five minutes, where he sits and tells adoring white people utter and complete nonsense. Some of the things in his book are things like, instead of there being grades, because school is racist and the way we know it's racist is because black kids don't tend to do as well in it, we need to start evaluating students on things like their desire to know. What the hell is that? And yet that's being treated as wisdom because he is black and he has dreadlocks and he's cool. And he happens to have you know, taken this moment. And I'm not saying that he's supposed to turn down the money, but the fact is, he's being asked to do this. And people are taking him seriously, or they're pretending to take him seriously, and that includes teenagers. And so it seems to me that the white guilt is such a drug that careers like that can be started. And I, I wish I could see the end of it coming, but I don't. Anyway, go ahead. Do you think that white guilt is fading at all? I think there's going to be a backlash against the extremes of 2020. I think that the hard left wokeness is so ridiculous in so many ways and so nasty that I think there's going to be a backlash against that. But the general sense that we are not full human beings, the general sense that what makes you a good white person is to basically listen to anything people like, you know, Kendi, et cetera, say, I don't think that's going to go away. That's become established as their way of evaluating themselves as good moral actors. But I'm, not, I'm not sure what would stop it. But don't you want to take account of the diversity of the country? I mean, you could say that uh, Donald Trump is a, in part an indication of a leading edge of a backlash that might build. I mean, he will come and he will go. He might lose this election and he'll be gone. But the sentiment that Black Lives Matter is a Marxist organization and that uh, the politically correct catechism of the campuses and the uh, uh, elite newsrooms is uh, anathema to the, the basis of what makes America a great country, that sentiment is not going to go away. It's, it's out there, man. If that's going to push the white extreme. I argue that Trump has a certain charisma in the black community precisely because he has no white guilt. Hmm. He's a white man with no guilt uh, who looks at blacks and says, what do you got to lose? <laughs> Get with it. <laughs> um, that, I, he, that's good. And he's beginning to peel off considerable uh, black voters Obviously, going to be very important in this election, and uh, and <clears throat> he and he looks like he may do very well. We'll see. But the, the reaction of these rappers does uh, give some indication that what you're saying, there's something to it. Michael Brown was shot and killed, and Black Lives Matter had formed after the Trayvon Martin George Zimmerman case. And they were ready for another case to come along. And Michael Brown was the case that they, that's, what, that's probably why it was so hard to see the truth. They had an agenda, they wanted to go in. They made the point, they left the town. So now they're gone. But what was very interesting, and unfortunately, because the documentary is already about, you know, uh, uh, almost two hours long, we were not able to put this in there. But I have interviews with people like the um, Salvation Army, 
um, who has set up shop in the um, in the location where this, where the cushion this, uh, the cushion trip was burned down uh, on the same day after Mr. Brown was shot and killed. And what they said was, we have been wrong about how we address uh, the low uh, the the black underclass, how we address poverty and so forth. We used to think that we, we should manage to check by how many beds we filled every night, how many meals we gave away. And but you should keep perpetuating poverty, not giving any values or anything like that. So what we decided to do, and especially when I'm paraphrasing, is that we are going to look at each individual. Now this is very interesting because Black Lives Matters is not individual based, it's more anti-capitalism, anti-marriage and all the values. But the people on the ground, they will have to look for, quote, quote, the spark in each individual. So if this little girl wants to be a writer, let's find her a mentor in the St. Louis community. Let's get her on that track, let's inspire her. So that's what, they, that's what they're doing right now, is they're looking for the spark in each individual. And, and most importantly, what they're doing is they're selecting the people. They understand they have limited resources, so they're looking for the most, the people that have this, uh, abilities to succeed. And so they're cherry picking. So it's a very interesting development that's going on in, in, in the black community. And, and uh, it's a way to break out of that ugly symbiosis between white guilt and black development. And the people are coming to understand the largest truth. And that's the gift. Um, I mean, as trashy as this shooting was, I mean, that's sort of the gift that the shooting has given that community. It brought them more down to reality. Wow. You guys, you mentioned uh, interviewing uh, some people that you couldn't use the footage, but the footage that you did use is extreme, seems to me, extraordinarily powerful. Uh, these are uh, ministers and uh, politicians, business people, uh, African-American voices, but they are a little bit dissonant with uh, the woke narrative. Uh, they're asking questions that you don't ordinarily hear uh, African-American uh, leaders ask. Uh, how, did, how did you come to that? How did you find these people? Um, what's the backstory on your interaction with the real African-American community on the ground in St. Louis and Ferguson? Um, Eli, you want to run with that? <laughs> um, Eli, yeah, if Ferguson, you have to remember one thing, though. It, hey, you want to make a documentary on Ferguson? The people in Ferguson are like, oh, she's another one. I mean, <laughs> they, yeah, and so they were very tired. They were busy. Which I, I don't blame them. I used to live around the corner from um, where O.J. Simpson murdered Nicole. Mm -hmm. And so I would go one in, I would see people, just, every anniversary there'd be a whole new truck and everything, you should kind of run by them, you know. Uh, so I, so what we did though, was I just, I just went into Ferguson, I showed up, and once I showed up, they took me more seriously and just started knocking on doors and um, get people to talk to us. And one thing that I think that we bring, uh, you know, my father and I, is that we don't approach people um, from a political bias point of view and not the media, which usually acts a very step, very step, I mean, that's the way that, that's what they know. That's all they know is the question. That's why you get the same answers as Al Sharpton, all these people all the time. We come in, we just ask different questions. And we get different answers. And we push them. And what was shocking was how little 
all the people knew about the history of Pu and Aigo. Mm -hmm. That was the most shocking thing. They did not know about the black uplift. They did not know the history of the ground that they were standing on. So we were talking about that, and then they would go, okay, and they, but they, you know, like, like, not even, I would think it's a black thing, I think it's an American thing. This systemic argument has been so pervasive, they influence everybody. And it, it, it disconnects us from that history. When I tell people about uh, our family in Kentucky, how after slavery, they started night school. They went to work in the field, and then they went to night school. I mean, that's what black people did. I mean, we, you know, we, I mean, it's, very, it's a very proud, very proud history to be, to be connected to. And that's the worst thing about systemic racism, about that whole thing, is that you're forcing me to abandon that history and prove that it's just everywhere I'm powerless. No, and so that's the, um, and so that's, I think, unfortunately, a lot of people in that area have been corrupted by that. Not just that area, but the United States. You know, something that I did think about, though, was during about the final quarter of it is that, um, you know, we all know, I think all four of us know that in any black community, there is the, the ex-con who takes young boys into his hands and, you know, teaches them some things and tries to keep them out of trouble. You know, that, that, that's a noble type. And there's been that guy for you know, a good 40 years. And the woman who you know, miss whoever who opens up her house to kids and, you know, shows them a, a different way. Those figures are standard and they're always doing great work. I wonder if what you were saying was that there need to be more of them. Is that how the black community is going to save itself? Or does the government have some role, but just not the one that it's played in the past? Is it there need to be more Miss Johnsons and, you know, the guy who comes out from prison and tries to make a difference? What is the, what is the solution? Well, I'll take a quick run at it. I think that's exactly the solution. Um, that, there, yes, there, there, there has to be, in a sense, a, and, a, and, and how you do this I is, I, I have to admit, it's difficult to see at this point, given the way the world, the modern world is. But we're, we're looking for those old values of, of, uh, of inspir where you inspire people. You give them a sense of, of, of hope, of identify this is what's possible for you if you do this and you do that. And that's why this is so fun and exciting because it's going to get you here. It's, uh, you won't be stuck here. You will, you will uh, be on this track and you'll be moving ahead. And the same thing that motivates you and motivates me, motivates us all. Uh, is, is we, we want to do better. We want to get. We want to get more. We want to achieve. We want to establish, uh, do well, and all and, and so forth. And uh, we don't want to do badly. We don't want to. We don't want to be like if we show someone who's who's not been responsible for themselves. Uh, that self responsibility, self help. I love. You know, Malcolm X is my great heroic, heroic leader of all time. Uh, and, and his message of self-help is just, uh, to me, when everything is said and done, that's the thing, that's the idea that still stands. 
Self-help is, is the way ahead and we honor it, we should honor it, we should reward it, we should cherish it, we should celebrate it, um, we should just let the whole world see it, uh, make it our centerpiece. And it, it, it compensates for our history of victimization. Is our a, a future of self-help? And, and uh, there's a moral system implied there. Shelby, and I'm, I'm with you, man. I, that's, that's my sermon also. But I just have to ask you this. I mean, is there not a kind of romanticism or nostalgia? I hope uh, so. The, met <laughs> the metaphor I want to use is I got a garment. I can pull on a loose thread, and I can unravel the whole garment. But I can't push on that thread and put the integrity of the garment back together again. Hmm. The, oh, that's the, a good one. Program that you, the, the program that you're advocating, uh, which I believe in very much as a moral uh, position, requires institutions. It, it does it not. Re it requires a means by which you could mobilize the, uh, uh, you know, insights and the, the the kind of quest to do better and get it infiltrated into people's lives. It requires I don't know what a church, uh, a charter schools. Okay, okay. I'm, I'm, you know, again, I'm with you. Innovation and educational delivery that brings a thousand flowers blooming and has creative people coming in, uh, being able to reach these kids in ways that really empower them and give them a vision of what's possible in this great country that we live in. I, I think charter schools are the greatest institution in American, in, in Black American life today. Charter but schools. You, you really think that we can get the All the values, all the right values, all the right uh, focuses. Uh, and and focuses on the individual and on choice. I'm, uh, I'm with you, but this is a question that John raised when we were talking about this last time. Can we get to scale as an African-American community to affect enough of the many hundreds of thousands of youngsters who need to be redirected that we can really make a material difference in the course of, of events going forward? Yes, we can do it over time. It won't. It won't happen. You and I won't be around to see it. But we, we can, it can. There isn't any other option. There isn't any other way. It either it, we will have to take responsibility. We've avoided it. We thought that uh, we would be that the injustice we endured would would somehow lift us forward. It isn't. It won't do that. So we, we're gonna we're gonna have to retreat to self help. Or what will happen, to be just completely, you know, just looking at the world existentially, is that people will leave the group. Many American Indians have left the group, and they've, they're thriving. They're assimilating. They're not, they, they don't live as the reservation Indians live anymore, but they're happy and successful, and they moved on. Blacks are going to do the same thing. They're going to say, enough of that. I don't want the whole bitch, guys. I don't want it. I'm gonna move. I'm gonna. I'm out. I, hi. I'm, no, nothing unpleasant. Not, but but I'm gonna go my own way, and they'll peel off, and they'll do that, and they'll succeed. And others will see them do that and succeed, and then they will peel off. You know, people say, "Well, what what do I what am I gonna do about the black neighborhood and so forth?" And, and my my answer always the first answer is move. Yeah, um, this the um, a woman. Um, wow. <laughs> well, she terrifying prospect. She cleaned them. Um, she cleaned, um, cleaned homes, and she's from Virginia. She's from a military family. You know, she's black, 
And um, she's got a big problem with the black community because she's very aspirational. She's rookie. She wants to build this, you know, massive cleaning business and not let it do a lot of industrial business and stuff like that, which, I, which she's more than capable of doing. But what's very interesting is that she has to reject a lot of what she hears in the black community to move forward. She has she she can't be around it. She can't listen to them. They were why are you doing this? Why are you working this hard? Why are you fussy and stuff like this? And she said, Why would I not do that? But the fact that she has to endure the question. You know, most people most groups don't do that. Most people, oh wait, good for you. Keep on up. How can I help you? And so that's a very sad thing for her because you know she loves, you know, these people, this is not her family, this is a friend and associate, you know, she loved being around them, but they grind down on her and um, other people really don't have that issue. So that's why, it's, you know, it's, um, she just had to, she had the actual, why, why you, why, why did you not fall into that trap? And she just very simply, she just said very simply, there's nothing there. There's nothing there. There's just nothing there. <laughs> I mean, I should sit around all day. So that's what I'm saying, that's what the option is. I mean, even if you look at me, if you look at me, I'm deaf, I was born deaf. The government in, at least in the late 70s, put forth a new policy called IDEA, Individual Education, or Individuals with Disabilities Act or something like that, which basically allows people with disabilities to be mainstream into the classroom. So I was like one of the first students, so this is a very positive government experience because what they did was they paid for an um, itinerant teacher at the same one from first grade all the way to fourth grade. She came in with staff initially for probably 15, 20 hours a week. That's a lot of government, federal money, or state money coming in. And every semester or quarter, my parents had to go meet with the superintendent and they would review my grades. And the superintendent, would, my parents would come back and say, the superintendent is unhappy with you. Your grades are too low. They go poor the services unless you perform. So I had that force in my life. And that, and that really, by the time I got to high school, I gave up all the bullying around, all that stuff. Um, but if I did not have my parents coming home and putting that fear, not, not a positive fear, into me, and made me realize that these people are helping me. These people are doing everything. They're taking resources they can use for other children, and they're giving it to me. So it's like, you better get your butt together and, and make that right. Well, we're probably getting toward the end of our time here, but I can't help but ask you guys this, because as a proud father of three sons, I can only imagine the joy of creating, conceiving, creating, executing, and then uh, marketing uh, a, uh, a piece of uh, work of this magnitude and of, of, of this degree of personal you know, uh, you know, investment. So I invite you to reflect a little bit, if you don't mind, on uh, the collaboration. And uh, I, I'm sure it wasn't every day, you know, you wake up on the same page and you, you're agreeing with everything and all like that. But I'm also sure at the end that the feeling of satisfaction must just be uh, over the top amazing. Uh, how about that, Shelby? 
Well, absolutely, absolutely. I, I look at it as a, uh, a privilege and an honor. I did, um, it, it uh, just sort of evolved. Uh, and Eli has made other films before this and, and, um, uh, and, I, and I, I sort of wanted to, but I, working with him on this film, and he did 70% of this film. I did maybe 20, 30%. He did, he did, I mean, he, it is, this is work to go to a little place like Ferguson, to knock on doors, to type all of that up, to make sure to play one against to find out what, who's going to give us the best interview, who's going to, I mean, hours and hours, days, weeks, months. It took about two and a half years to, to, to get all this, uh, all this together. Um, so it was a blessing in my life to work with my, my own son that way. Uh, and and uh, who's a grown man now, he has his own point of view, and that I have to respect, which wasn't, as you said, wasn't easy every day when I looked <laughs> uh, And we, we had our, we, we learned to fight pretty well. We learned to, to fight to a point, then move on. Uh, and uh, and to to make the project the the the, the goal, and uh, so we we uh, I love him and we uh, I, I feel blessed and and I think think of myself as a lucky man. Yeah. I, I can I feel the same way. Um, yeah, it was, it was awesome. Uh, I mean uh, I mean I know my father's work very well, so it was difficult to people you know uh, pushing me a little bit in training direction make him uh, interview people that he may not want to interview. And most difficult was that these people would fall in love with him. And even though they may be on the other end of the political spectrum, and it really just shows you, when you stick down and talk to people, how much more in common you have with them, it's just a little differently. Um, but, you know, it was, it was a blessing to work with him and, uh, and to have this film uh, together. I mean, you can't ask for anything more than that. Al Sharpton uh, must have been interesting. Yeah. To, how did it go with Al Sharpton? Like, off camera. Well, Al Sharpton. Yeah. He's I'm John. I say he's one of his favorite people. <laughs> I think he's a lot of fun in person. And I just wonder yeah, how yeah, that was. Yeah. I interviewed him 30-some years ago. Right. But then also this time. Uh, that was... Yeah, but then also for did this. you actually interview him, or did you just have a film of him? Uh, did you have an I interview? I thought I saw you in the room. No, we spent about a day or more together, um, thirty years. So I got to know him, and we were going to back, and he wanted to go out on a speaking tour and have the two of us debate each other in colleges. <laughs> uh, what? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Al, Al's okay. game. Al Sharpton is a game that I have, I have fundamental respect. I disagree utterly with his overriding point of view. I think he, and I think to some degree he's exploited. Um, but he's also a self-made man. He is. In a world, in a world that uh, he didn't give him every advantage in the, in the book. And he had to invent himself and reinvent himself. And uh, so to me, he's a kind of mythic figure. Uh, you take him that way, it's a little, it's easier to appreciate him. So I have nothing against him <laughs> <women> now. <laughs> Listen, I want to, as I close this out here, uh, just uh, express something, which is a great admiration for what you all have done in this film. 
Uh, but more than that, Shelby, I think I need to say great admiration for what you've done in your career. Uh, I was remarking when John and I discussed this uh, film uh, when we talked a couple of weeks ago that the content of our character was published in 1990 and indeed was based on essays that you'd been putting out in Harper's years before that. Yeah. That's a long friggin' time, man. That's a long time. It's a long time to have been right about something without almost anybody else, except for a few neoconservatives, recognizing that you were right <laughs> about it. So um, my wow. hats are off to you. You deserve, what is it, the National Medal of Humanities or, or whatever it's called. I beg your pardon if I don't get the title quite right. But uh, uh, hats off to you. Really great respect uh, for what it is that you've accomplished and a, a significant influence on American political culture in my lifetime. I think that needed to be said. Yeah. Well, coming from you, my man, that means absolutely everything to me. I can't tell you because I respect you. And I remember first reading you in the 80s in Commentary Magazine. Yeah. Uh, some of your, your first essays. Uh, turned my head. I, I, I was sort of moving and then I, I read you and it, it solidified things uh, for me. And I, I thought I saw a new possibility. Uh, and so I thank you for that. Well, thank you. That's and isn't it, isn't it uh, the way that my Christian friends would say it, the way God moves, isn't it just an amazing thing? It you is. know? It is amazing. It ain't over until it's over, Shelby. That's right. That's right. <laughs> both of you, both of you also created me. It was reading you guys in the '90s that turned me, and I just thought to myself, I will not be told that those two don't make sense, which is what I was told. You know, I, I found how come everybody thinks they're wrong? They're wrong, and it was you two who were my main inspirations. So yeah, yeah, all the power. Thank you. Well, okay, this is Glenn Lowry, and uh, on behalf of myself and John McWhorter, I'm signing off for. The Glenn Show here uh, with Shelby Steele and Eli Steele talking about their film, What Killed Michael Brown. It's been a real pleasure and an honor to talk with you guys. So thank you so much. Same here. Thank, thank you. you. Have, yeah. Have a good thank day. You.